Thanks to Delupa for sponsoring this season of Compounders. Delupa scales the velocity of an investment team's idea generation by allowing analysts to spend less time locating and manually inputting meaningful disclosures into Excel. As someone who spends a lot of time updating models with data that some of the other major platforms, such as Bloomberg and Capital IQ, don't capture, I have seen firsthand how much time Delupa can save professional investors. Specifically, Delupa captures data from all company reported sources, including from footnotes, MDNAs, and investor presentations. Their data sheets also include gap to non-gap adjustments, guidance, and all company-specific KPIs. Each data point is auditable to the source for easy verification and accuracy. Delupa's Excel plugin can also update existing models for the latest quarter in just a single click. More bulge bracket banks and top-tier investment managers are trusting Delupa for assistance in initiating coverage, building and maintaining industry dashboards, and keeping models up to date. Please visit www.delupa.com compounders to learn more about how Delupa can help increase your team's speed to differentiated insight. Welcome to the Compounders Podcast. On this show, we explore the topic of compounding from various angles, including through interviews with public and private company executives, investors who focus on compounders, and newer investment firms that are building a business they hope will become more valuable over time. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of SNN or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Ethan Debit, the CIO of Moneta a wealth management firm with about $30 billion of assets under management. Moneta has been around for over 150 years and has been an RIA since the late 1980s. The firm is 100% partner-owned and has grown to have over 400 employees. In this in-depth conversation, we discussed the general trends that have been driving clients towards RIAs and multifamily offices, how Moneta approaches asset allocation for clients, how Moneta differentiates itself from other large wealth management firms, the use of outside managers versus leveraging internal investment strategies and the unique 25 plus team structure of Moneta. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Ethan Devitt, the CIO of Moneta. Moneta manages over 30 billion in assets. What would you say have been some of the drivers of the firm being able to achieve that level of AUM? Well, we have been a firm that has grown by acquisition. Although not being private equity backed, that has obviously narrowed the universe of how we can achieve that acquisition. So there has been an element of that. But the actual core growth has really come through the massive growth, not only in markets, but also in this private wealth segment. We have been around for many decades as a firm. And as a result, our most successful teams will be growing mostly by referral. And with the wave of wealth creation we've seen through this great acceleration in the U.S. economy over the past few decades, and particularly the last one, there has just been an explosion in referral business. So much of that has been, um, therefore, a contributing factor to the asset size. In addition to that, right, this general kind of wealth creation and wealth transfer, it feels like the large RIA multifamily office space has been a specific beneficiary of asset flows over the last five or 10 years. Any Anything you can think of that is a you know, somewhat driving the, you know, the the direction of asset flows towards firms like Moneta? 
I do think we're seeing a shift in wealth management, a desire to get away from commoditized wealth advice, and definitely a preference for a more holistic style of financial planning. That would involve somebody who knows the client individually, will work with them on every aspect of their financial planning and of their lives, really, from succession planning to, to tax implications, to estate planning, and to generally just assisting them make a plan for a future that is secure and allows them to navigate life's paths according to the values that they hold dear. So that holistic approach, I think, is driving a more individualized, client-centric model, which is the, the beneficiaries would therefore be the RIA, the growth of the RIA space, and probably the losers in that would be some of the large brokerage firms, the large wholesalers that perhaps don't have that individualized touch. So you brought up the large, you know, traditional legacy asset managers who have dominated this space. And you mentioned that there's a more maybe commoditized or more cookie cutter approach. It, that's been true. That same criticism has been true ever since I've been hearing about this business. Like it's been true for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. Like it just feels like there's always this um, kind of thought that you get much better service from, from the non-banks. Has that changed at all? Have they, have, you know, from what you can see, have they changed their strategies or their people or their focus to be, to copy more of what you guys have been doing well? Well, certainly I'd never like to be complacent about our competition. And I do think that just the moment when we think we're the only one perhaps with this personalized strategy or the edge, we find find that it's been you know, quietly growing everywhere and we no longer have an edge there. So we, I would suggest, yes, that that is changing. Um, there's certainly a wide recognition of the importance of the behavioral side now of money and also of the wraparound services. And that really is gets to the whole CFP designation which, as you know, is a constantly evolving designation and is is touching all of those aspects that I mentioned. So I would suggest, yes, there's not exactly a large moat there. And um, you know, what we're doing to a degree is, is going to be replicable. So I'd say, yes, they're growing. And how do we continue to develop an edge? It's through having, we believe, an eye on where the market is going in terms of the desire for that, what's called the sizzle often in wealth management. We define that for us as the ability to offer Tailorized, tailored solutions, customized solutions, and specifically to offer solutions that will perhaps move up the mission spectrum. If a client has a particular mission or impact that they'd like to achieve, we want to have a flexible solution that can cater to any client's desire to affect change through their investment that may or may not be a priority for them. We also want to be able to offer something quite different from the 60-40 solution and that is where we our alternatives come in. We have quite a substantial alternatives presence. We're adding resources there. We are cheered by what we see in terms of the product range that appeals to, that is for the RIA investor and the smaller investor. And we're actually quite high conviction in this area and its growth potential over coming years. So that's how we're evolving. I think the key element in this space is never get complacent, never assume anything, keep changing, keep communicating moreover. And you mentioned competition and how that may evolve. I'm interested since you've had a tailwind for a number of years towards more, as you said, holistic solutions, more personalized solutions. Are there any countervailing forces that concern you? Or is your base case that the trend will towards the kind of services you're offering is going to continue over the next whatever X years? Well, certainly the rise of the robo-advisor has always got to be something that we have in mind. And increasingly we're seeing the rise of AI and its potential use 
in our business and how many of our responses, even the sort of the high value responses could even be generated by AI. I think the test of the robo-advisor model has pretty much suggested that it has a use for sure, um, particularly for clients who are very familiar with technology, very desirous of keeping fees low and not looking for something particularly tailored, looking for sort of off the shelf solutions. But I do think that the encroachment of that model is somewhat limited and will be in the future because at the end of the day, the more data and the more technologies we have at our fingertips, the more time that frees up for us to deliver that kind of counselor role, which comes into effect when one is more than simply a financial planner one does become a confidant, a life coach, uh, a general wraparound set of services. So I do think that the human component in that will be important, but it's for sure that AI and robo-advisors could be a headwind. And similarly, when we see these very large consolidators um, rolling up private wealth operations, centralizing the services, which is something we do at Moneta, and ultimately trying to offer services in an ever cheaper form and driving down fees, we don't find that fee consciousness is first and foremost for wealth, private wealth clients. Mm. They are generally looking for the service, as I mentioned, um, and a return net of fees is obviously where the focus should be. But that said, um, as very large groups consolidate and gain market share, that could be something that um, that becomes a headwind. And you mentioned consolidation and centralization there. I'm interested in understanding the benefits of scale that a large wealth management firm has that maybe a potential client a client might not be acutely familiar with? Oh, definitely huge benefits of scale when it comes to, let's just start with the operations side. So when you have a scaled platform, you can deliver the, the back office and that nobody really talks about, which is say the HR, the payroll, the compliance, that can obviously be scaled over a larger group. So you don't find those as barriers to entry the way they would be, say, for a smaller RIA. Then when it comes to actually the implementation side, obviously an investment portfolio, being able to get in-house fixed income trading, in-house portfolio management, that will all drive costs down. And also having scale enables us to have an investment team that can scour the universe for best ideas in the investment space, not only in the traditional side, but also the alternative side. That's probably the one that benefits most from scaling because it is, as you know, the most expensive place to source talent. So those are clearly obvious areas. Similarly, when we have scale, it enables us to generate education pieces, to have a platform that can have fireside chats, um, individual education. We can have training videos, multimedia approaches, all of this that increasingly can help us to attack client demand at every part of the spectrum, whether it be for TikTok style short videos, for long form research pieces, or for shorter, more punchy weekly pieces. So scale enables all of that. It gets us the attention of the money managers who are seeking to penetrate the space. And we get high level attention, which could also translate into better fee arrangements, better access. That's a key part. It can also get us attention with the platform providers, such as Case, iCapital, enables us to generate products that are going to be more client-centric. And again, with a better kind of risk reward when it comes to the fee model there. So I'd say there are far more benefits of scale than disbenefits, certainly. And I think that is going to be the direction of travel going forward. I think that's accurate. And is there, is one of the pitches regarding why someone chooses you because of that scale that you can offer because you have that scale, a lower all-in fee, or is that not necessarily, it's more like for the fee that you're getting, you get 
you just have access to all of these things that a smaller firm might not have. Exactly the latter. We ha- can enrich in our service pr- um, provided to a client um, by using our scale in this way. And that service, as I mentioned, really focuses a lot on knowledge sharing, education, trust to state. It's really continuously expanding what we can take off the client's plate and do for them. I think most business models would, would agree and most modelers would agree that having a purely fee-based price comp- competitive model is not a, a way, the way to build a sustainable business and nor the way to win customer loyalty. So um, certainly we're always looking to offer value to our clients, but I think focusing on being able to offer the best service in many different spheres is a much more sustainable way to build a business. And one of the big themes that I think is ongoing in the industry is the big generational wealth transfer that is going to occur as the baby boomers continue to age. What do you think? We talked a little bit about robo-advisors, and I want to have another question about that. But what do you think millennials and Gen Zs are looking for in a financial partner that is different from what their parents or grandparents were looking for? It's an interesting question. I mean, some may may be different in the sense that we may not need the same level of in-person interaction, the same um, level of traditional contact points, perhaps uh, the quarterly meeting, um, the um, the focus, the, the assiduous focus on investment. That may have been a, a previous old school way of arranging meetings with a financial advisor. Today, I think the conversation will be more free ranging. It may well have more contact points, but less formal contact points, not mm. necessarily four times in the office. It may be less. I do see that there is a trend around a desire to have um, impact with one's investment and to fulfill a mission and really just live one's values through one's investment portfolio. That's by no means the case for every single person of a certain generation. But I do think that there is an increased desire for that. And we need to be able to cater for that where where we see the demand. So it's, again, it's not universal. And equally, I do think that there is more access to media news channels so there's perhaps a little bit more access more broadly, more knowledge more broadly, but less depth um, in, in every single aspect of that. So we then have the ability to deliver the depth where needed and just stay abreast of new sectors such as digital currency, digital assets in general, biotech and, and high tech. That's not to say we are tailoring portfolios specifically around that, but we need to have answers for questions around portfolios and the amount of those assets that they contain. When it comes to robo-advisors, is that simply a focus on younger demographic? I mean, is that is the threat really that you work with someone's parents or grandparents, but that their their kids or grandkids are going to work with a robo-advisor? Is it is it really focused on, on just attracting a younger customer base or um, <laughs> is the application or the demand broader than that, would you say? The, um, I'd say it is broader than that. We should, certainly shouldn't assume that only the younger investor base is interested in robo-advisor. I think we should see that the more cost-sensitive, tech-savvy generations, reminding that, that that can go throughout all generations, may well um, enjoy the efficiency of having a portfolio on one's, on one's cell phone and that kind of um, friction, low-friction approach to a portfolio like that. So I'd say that that we, we definitely will span many generations but as to where the actual customer gains have come from, tends to be clients who have a smaller portfolio to start with because it's easier essentially to handle in that type of a, an index-based portfolio. And that would tend to correlate with the younger generation. So in a way, it does line up to that being the biggest I suppose, client segment at risk from robo-advisors at this time. 
And from a pure strategy perspective, I could see a firm that was more high touch, not wanting to offer low touch services so that you don't dilute the brand and dilute the offering. How have you thought about trying to cater to maybe someone who doesn't want as high touch through technology without impacting the way the brand and the full service offering is perceived? Well, with many of our clients, we have only a percentage, say, of certain of our um, offerings being used. So we will always have the app capability, which is the closest we have to a robo-advisor in that we we believe most of the appeal of the robo-advisors was the easy access mm. at a glance to your, your portfolio, to your movements, and really just that ease of access that didn't require going through a person to get it. So we can deliver that through the app currently. So we do have essentially... What the difference between what we do and what a robo-advisor does is we just have additional layers of service. So it's always an opportunity for a client to take fewer layers of service and be happy with the basic layer. We don't charge differently for that, but if they don't need it, we don't really have to deliver it. So I suppose that's the kind of a la carte approach that we allow clients to take. But we don't actually see a conflict because we believe there is a certain amount of tech-enabled delivery that every client should have. And Mm. some clients, that's enough. And other clients want to go deeper. And we will continue to offer that ability to go deeper because that's really where we can have the richest possible relationship with our clients. And that's probably one of the most enjoyable parts as well is the educational sessions, you know, talking to a client about something complex, like say a venture capital portfolio solution and being able to get feedback from their clients and evolve our offering accordingly. And evolution is a topic that we cover on this podcast um, pretty extensively whether it's from an, how an investor evolves or how a firm evolves. I'm interesting. I'm interested in how you think that Moneta has to evolve from a culture or a, an offering perspective to really take advantage of the wealth transfer opportunity. Well, the wealth transfer opportunity clearly is empowering a younger generation of client. And how does a wealth manager evolve to meet that is they make sure they have their own transition very much in order and their own succession planning between teams because we're going to have clearly succession planning happening within in-house when we have old older partners retiring or wanting to to generate um, a second layer of talent that they can pass their business to so what we have always had is excellent talent at every stage essentially of the demographic spectrum so that we can meet clients where they're at in terms of their um, their run runway and their desire to interact with different um, different peers. So I'd say that we have to have young talent and groom that talent and ensure that we're constantly looking at our own succession. And then when it comes to reading the room and seeing where the wealth management business is moving to, that's where our individual teams, whether it be trusts and estates, marketing or investment comes in and that we're constantly out there in the market looking at our RIA peers going to conferences, hearing what's top of mind. I mentioned behavioral analysis and behavioral officer type roles and looking at a client's relationship with money and the potential biases and then examining our own biases as advisors and how they relate to that. That is definitely an exciting new emerging field within wealth advisory. And being able to keep abreast of that is one of the most exciting things that we're currently working on. But I'd say, you know, looking at the the environment, not staying in one's box, being very open-minded, open to change, and ensuring that our team is refreshing the way the client base is. This season of Compounders is sponsored by Deluba. Deluba was founded by a former hedge fund analyst 
To bring simplicity to the investment process, Delupa offers an AI-driven single source for all company reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. For more information, please visit delupa.com slash compounders. When you bring up the behavioral aspect, it makes me think of differentiation. I'm curious about some of the main sources of differentiation that Moneta can provide when you're focusing on wealth management and family office clients. Like, How do you distinguish yourself from the other firms of your similar size and scale? I'd say it's, as I said, we don't know exactly what every other firm does, but what we try to differentiate ourselves is we have a very core mission um, that we enable clients to navigate life's path so that they can have access to the things that they cherish. And that is our starting point with every client. When we do our financial action plan, we will be looking at with them at you know, their priorities and ensuring that we are broad in our sweep in terms of what we're looking to achieve in terms of our financial action plan. Um, I'd say that where we distinguish ourselves is really on the depth that we have in our centralized offering. At 32 billion in assets under management, we are one of the larger RIAs currently and having this access to a deep bench of alternatives professionals as well as an 18 person investment team. That's our distinction right now is being able to have that depth that is usually more seen at a pension fund or an institutional investor. We have that in house at our current size. And I've seen several wealth management firms tout their focus on avoiding taxes and maximizing tax losses as a differentiator. Is that a potential area of differentiation or do you consider that more table stakes for the industry? I do consider it table stakes. I think there was even a Wall Street Journal article about that just this past weekend. Um, it that clearly that is is top of mind for every um, wealth, every high net worth individual, and every wealth advisor should be able to optimize for those techniques. I think the proactive nature of it might vary between different wealth advisors. The automation of it, and therefore how efficiently it can be carried out, and that's why having a centralized portfolio management team is so key because we can then do that in a very seamless, efficient way. And you mentioned having an internal research team. I'm interested in how you think about the balance of using outside managers versus making those discretionary investment decisions in-house. So we do not run our own um, instruments in-house with the exception of municipal bonds. And that has stemmed from our history. We've always found the efficiency in building bond ladders to reside in-house. And similarly, having a centralized bond trading team takes that away from the teams. When it comes to the rest of a portfolio and implementing that, we found that mutual funds, ETFs, active managers have um, provided a very cost-effective solution for a firm of our size and that it would involve a huge investment to take on an individual stock-picking team within um within in-house because they're simply we do not believe we have the 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 edge necessarily to do that in-house and we'd rather select a manager that can do that so there's not really a balance there i'd say we do of course inherit single stock portfolios we inherit concentrated stock portfolios and we work with clients to diversify them over time again in a way that is optimized for tax efficiency so i'd say those are the only areas where we would do single stock specific work but otherwise, it's we find we know our strengths. We know they lie in picking managers and in portfolio construction. And therefore, we are going to leave the actual money management on the equity side to a third party. I think I read on your website that you have about 30 CFAs working in-house. 
what, what is that person doing if he or she is not focused on individual investments? If, if within the investment team, they'll be focused on selecting managers. Um, they may be focused on strategy, macro indications, and looking at portfolio construction or model portfolios. All those 30 CFAs are not in our investment team because we have 18 people on the investment team. So there are probably many CFAs scattered throughout the firm who are working as advisors. They may mm. have a particular sophisticated, more sophisticated knowledge on investing and more um, perhaps a more breadth in their investing knowledge, but they will still be working as broader advisors with advice being provided across the spectrum, including around estate planning and other financial planning characteristics. And I want to go back because when I initially asked about the growth, you talked about acquisitions. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the history of acquisitions and then also address the kind of firm that would fit well with Moneta going forward. Yeah, so we started out as a St. Louis only firm. We now have steadily built our footprint on a national basis. We have offices in Kansas City, outside Boston. We have one in Denver. And we have one in Chicago. Um, so we are definitely building our presence nationally. I'd say that we have clients, of course, across a much broader swathe of the United States than that. We don't have offices in every state where our clients are located. So many of our advisors will do lots of travel. But the acquisitions have grown up when teams joining us from those different locations. And then ultimately, once we build an office, then other teams who maybe do a lot of work in Chicago or Kansas City will send a representative to be there full time. In terms of the time of fit we have, as I mentioned, we are not private equity backed. So we grow organically and we also grow by acquisition, but a very particular kind of acquisition. We want to have teams join us with a view to continuing their growth. So they are, are joining us with a long runway ahead of them. They're becoming partners. They're embracing the centralized services model, which is where the investment team sits. And they are comfortable with many of their functions being carried out on a central basis and with the time saving that that will attach to them. So for example, a cottage industry RIA that is used to doing every single function on their own and is more comfortable doing every single function, like say billing on their own, doesn't need the tech enabled app. They may not be a particularly good fit because they may not see the benefit of that scale. So I'd say it's groups that see the benefit of scale and are sort of pitched at the right level in terms of their own seniority and socioeconomic mix. Well, that's, I was going to say that wrong. They're, they're pitched at the right age in terms of their own seniority and age range so that they have the ability to grow with the firm. And it seems to me like there are certain holes in the market, maybe I, don't know, I think Southeast or you know West Coast seem like opportunities. Is that, is, is it really the acquisition strategy? Would, be, would it be continue to be focused on on specific regions and localization. It just seems to me in a Zoom world that you wouldn't need as much of that, but maybe I'm totally wrong. I'd say we do need the offices because at the end of the day, it's important to have a presence for generating new business, for their referrals, for having client events, those clients who like to meet in person. And even where we don't have offices, a significant amount of time is spent on the road. So um, I'd suggest that is changing and certainly it's introducing flexibility into relationships, the ability to uh, meet on Zoom. And certainly I'd say more of the hybrid approach is going to be the way we do it going forward. But I don't think we're ever going to see a, see the a remote only 
financial planning firm um, and wealth advisory firm, I think we will still need to have that in-person presence. It's also important for our teams to work together in person to re reinstate our values, to build trust and to, to find synergies. And another thing that I noticed on your website is that you're building an institutional consulting business to go along with wealth management. Why is the uh, consulting side a good complement to the wealth management side? Well, I suppose if you think about the relationship with clients, they are often consultative in that we are working with them to, to, to consult and essentially invest their portfolio and think about their needs and their evolving needs. And that's very similar to what you would do as a consultant. There could be some entities that come to us um, via our individuals. Um, they could be maybe a charity that the individual is arranged involved with, a family office, a foundation, um, and then families grow and ultimately their size will get to a point where they will be almost treated like an institution who would have a consulting relationship. So I'd say it's a sliding scale and always we have that, you know, that ability to move up the spectrum. But equally, there could be some clients for whom a consulting relationship makes sense, particularly if it's like one of these institutions. And equally, there are other RIAs out there who may not have the same kind of depth that we have in our investment team. And it could be that for them, a consulting relationship makes sense. So I'd say consultant is a very loose term, but it certainly yeah. encompasses the wide range of what could be done. And I'd love to talk a little bit about asset allocation and, and you know how you're viewing markets at the moment. Uh, so we've had a long period of time where the yields on fixed income assets and the associated spreads were at or near historic lows. How does your approach have to shift given the rapid rise in interest rates? Well, certainly we had started already, let's start before we start talking about interest rates, talking about inflation. So we already, with, with 18 months ago, two years ago, we're starting to be concerned that our, our portfolio should have more inflation resilience, explicitly and implicitly. So an implicit inflation resilience is always equities, and that's something that's been on our portfolios from inception. But when it comes to explicit inflation resilience, that was something that we wanted to build in via real estate and infrastructure. So that's something we've been doing for some time. It has not necessarily been a particular, particularly good trade in the last year. Some of those utilities and infrastructure stocks have underperformed the broader market. But we do believe that with their inflation linkage, their defensive characteristics, and their cash flowing profile, they make sense in an inflationary environment. So then when it comes to the um, rate rise environment, uh, certainly the, the magnitude of the rate hikes and the short time frame in which they occurred clearly had the inevitable effect on the 60-40 portfolio that we saw in 22. We didn't make any change to that portfolio, though, in the aftermath of 22, in that we, we still had a belief at that point that, and we still do, that there is a role for the 60-40 portfolio, however, that it should be diversified into other diversifiers like alternative assets, infrastructure, private assets, and private credit that we've been doing so now essentially for two or three years at Moneta. So we have a firm belief that that's the direction of the new balance portfolio, that it will have even more balance because it will be balanced between public and private assets. When it comes to the rising rate environment, clearly we're looking closely at the yields that may say accrue in a sweep account and encouraging clients to use money market funds instead. We are looking at the relative attractiveness of fixed income yields today and are not feeling so concerned about having money sit in cash for a little longer. We are not, though, dramatically toggling the amount in fixed income for our clients, bearing in mind that many of our clients didn't have a lot in fixed income anyway. 
We do mm. have model portfolios that would have the sliding scale between equities and fixed income. And in one traditional conservative portfolio, there might be even 80% fixed income. But we actually typically in practice did not have many clients that took that approach. They have been quite negative on bonds for some time. And just in the belief that growth is ultimately what you want to have in your portfolio and you need to have equities to achieve growth. So we would be slightly increasing fixed income at the margin in, to reflect these higher yields, certainly more comfortable sitting in cash, but not taking any really tactical view with respect to equities, how they should perform in against the backdrop of those rising rates, primarily because very little has performed according to how textbooks say they would have performed. We haven't seen the money flow out of, of growth equities as yields have increased in the bond side. And we've also seen increased correlation between bonds and equities anyway. So we've seen strength in equities as bonds have strengthened and, and vice versa. So we are preferring not to be too tactical about calling sectors or asset classes within equities. And instead, we are looking at maintaining our core exposure underwriting it assiduously and going back and re-underwriting every single active manager, assessing whether they've generated alpha and whether they their strategy still makes sense in the somewhat unusual equity market we still, still seem to be in. And I want to talk a little bit about how you, different views on various equity markets, but I want to dive a little deeper into how you incorporate the macro. I know that you provide frequent commentary on markets in the macro environment. We talked about interest rates and inflation, but how typically does Moneta incorporate the macro into your allocation? We spent a lot of time looking at macro, but I wouldn't say we incorporate it in a very tactical way. Um, we believe it's really important to look at the context in which all investments are taking place. We're mindful that our investors are looking at the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, real time. They're listening to Bloomberg. They have Bloomberg Radio playing in the background and they want to know our thoughts. They want to know that we're not asleep at the switch when there is an article in the Wall Street Journal that says the balanced portfolio is dead. Have you asked your advisor what's happening to that 60-40? So we need to be very much on top of the news flow on a macro context and also a micro context when it comes to, say, wealth advice by media. So we look at that, we have a, a weekly CIOT where we will talk about macro developments and what we think they mean for the different asset classes in the portfolio. We will analyze what just happened in equity markets over the last week and try to make sense of it, try to weave a, a narrative that, that we can actually find um, coheres with, um, with what we, we've been discussing on the macro side and what clients may be thinking. So that's an important sense check really and a, a gut check in terms of where we are. As far as whether that affects our asset allocation, certainly at a high level, as I mentioned, when we see that yields are larger than they've ever been and quite attractive, we would then maybe have that modify our asset allocation split, but really only at the margin because we just are somewhat skeptical of these discussions that there's a sea change perhaps in, um, in, in how investors are thinking about risk or how they're thinking about equities or their holding period or their desire for for, for FOMO or, or otherwise. I'm quite skeptical that there is that kind of a sea change. I think changes are much more nuanced and iterative than sudden in that way. So we wouldn't want to dramatically change a portfolio to reflect what we believe is a, a new world order when I think, in fact, the um, the reality is a little bit less dramatic. I get the sense that you change asset allocation very reluctantly and slowly, which I appreciate. 
But the co- the context is the U.S. equity market has really been the place to be over the last decade plus. In fact, most non-U.S. markets have been totally left behind, the S&P and the NASDAQ. What role do you think international equity should play over the foreseeable investment time horizon? We're actually a little different from our RIA peers in that we do use quite a lot of non-U.S. equities in our portfolio. We always have. That would reflect both developed markets and emerging markets. And we equally have a portfolio that is a little less large cap centric um, than our peers. We'd have a lot of mid cap and small cap stocks in there or funds in there, at least. So I'd say that we tend to look a little bit more like an institutional portfolio than a typical private wealth portfolio. Some of that comes from our origins, the fact that many of our professionals have come from institutional backgrounds, and we believe in the long term global diversification case. Now, that has not necessarily been an easy thing to justify over recent years. There's been a lot of focus on the underperformance versus the U.S. of emerging markets and developed markets outside the U.S. The strength of the dollar equally has been that double whammy because that performance has not been able to, um, to, to compensate. So I'd say we have weathered quite a lot of headwinds um, recently when it comes to that portfolio. But we still have high conviction in the global investment case primarily because it has worked so far on a broad level over the longer term time frame. We believe in the diversification benefits of not having pure U.S. dollar exposure. We believe in the growth case outside the U.S. and simply there's different sources of return, whether that be a large multinational pharmaceutical company based in Europe or a high growth consumer company based in China. We, we do believe that these are uncorrelated sources of return and it's important to have exposure to them precisely for that moment that you don't expect when one of your traditional sources of growth, which could be U.S. tech, may stop working. I know this is sort of an impossible question, but I'm curious how you would rank the importance of asset allocation versus manager selection in the hierarchy of what is most important when it comes to generating the best returns. Well, certainly the academic view is that that's the 80-20, it's 80% asset allocation, 20% manager selection. I think in practice, um, we've seen a little bit of a reversal of that, that there's a belief, it really depends on how you implement um, that asset allocation and maybe don't just buy the index. And we just say if it's active versus passive and get if you invest in the top decile active managers that you may well have quite nice outsized returns. I'd say that we do have, I'd say, a 50-50 mix and that we believe the asset allocation is important. That's why our model portfolios are going to look different according to the risk spectrum that they're on and that they will look different because with a different balance of equities, bonds and alternatives. So that's a bit of our top level. We think that does make sense. When it comes to the asset allocation, though, we take nothing for granted within the asset allocation in terms of the manager selection. And we do spend a lot of time re-underwriting and rechecking that the managers that we've selected make sense. So I'd say we're more like a 50-50 than an 80-20, but it's we know that both are important. Concentration is another topic we, we've spent a lot of time on this podcast discussing. I'm interested in the number of managers you're working with, because I could see a situation where, you know, like the number of managers is small, but all of a sudden you, the, the the total, th- that group of managers owns 500 stocks. And all of a sudden you're looking a lot more, much more like an index, which you could just be, you could just buy an ETF for. How have you thought about manager concentration and total number of secure underlying securities that a client might own? Yeah, so when it comes to um, manager selection um, and, and, and concentration, we do have actually quite a limited number of managers, say, in our model portfolios. We you know, we will have 
maybe three or four per sector within a model portfolio, and then have a bench of, of the similar numbers. So the bench will be our recommended list. And that's the list that we will be comfortable using if a client has a preference or maybe wants to avoid this one manager because they their client never wants to invest in, in manager X ever mm -hmm. again. So we, we do try to have that ability to tailor. And I suppose when it comes to looking through, we don't try to get too clever in terms of number of underlying stocks. Yes, there will be overlap between many of our managers and there will be concentration that is not necessarily intended concentration. But for the most part, these are managers that are extremely large well-established and we haven't had any issues with them being overly concentrated. They tend to have quite index-like exposures and, um, and and it hasn't been an issue. But we, what we ensure is that we always have a bench so that when a manager does create red flags, we have the ability to seamlessly transition into one of our bench managers. And one of the benefits of your scale, I would assume, is the ability to um, well, at least have some some influence regarding the fees that you're paying to individual managers. Maybe talk a little bit about the importance of fees. Are you are you more of the group that says we're just picking great managers and you know they're gonna they're gonna earn their fees, or are you very fee conscious as you're choosing the right managers to partner with? Yes, when it comes to fees, um, definitely we want to ensure that we're getting the best value for clients. And there are fee share classes that are more accessible when you have a larger pot of money with that manager. There may be a separate account that's possible, maybe an institutional share class. And we are always angling to get the best value share class. And we will work with managers to either offer a different share class if necessary, or just to ensure that we're getting favored nation treatment there. When it comes to Getting access, I do think that actual size matters as well. And um, getting access for a smaller size, say a minimum of $25,000 as opposed to 5 million. That's incredibly important because then one gets access to a better quality manager as we assess them at a smaller scale. So influence can be asserted not only around fees, but also around access. And we talked a little bit about technology and kind of what's table stakes in the industry. I'm interested in terms of, as opposed to how the client facing side, I'm more, I'm interested in how you use technology internally um, to be, to become better operators, more efficient operators. And then where do you think you can use more technology over time? Certainly when one goes to an RIA conference, the focus on the tech stack gets uh, gets more and more attention. And that's another advantage of scale is getting access just to better technology. Where we are using technology is when it comes to peer reviews. So we want to know that our managers are stacking up um, against the broadest range of peers. We want to be able to slice and dice that universe differently. We want to be able to analyze attribution and to, to trace that attribution over time. And really just to be able to develop a set of risk metrics that give us a good understanding as to how managers like to perform in different environments. So that all relates to the kind of manager analysis side of things. Access to the tools that we need to optimize our fixed income trading, portfolio management, that again is the table stakes you mentioned before. We want to have minimal friction. We want to have um, a consumer a customer service arrangement with that tech provider that is, is getting us the answers we need without you know massive delays and we all ultimately want the cybersecurity side to be watertight and that's not all necessarily within the investment domain but as far as our interactions with the rest of the firm having 
um, technology at our fingertips that is, um, is we know is, is safe is um, is just, a, again, a, just a basic requirement now to do the work we do. And are you absolutely inundated with cool whiz bang new technologies that you can add that you're constantly having to explore and and vet? Or is it not quite that dynamic in the call it the asset management software space? Um, it could be that dynamic. I wouldn't say it's reaching our desk necessarily. Um, we don't, of course, deal with the clients ourselves. Our clients are our internal teams. So as to what the wealth management clients themselves will see as their interface, that could well be getting, uh, I mentioned the robo-advisors earlier, getting a lot more user-friendly, a lot more shiny, and, uh, and perhaps uh, with you know, bells and whistles attached for them. As far as us on the investment side, things are a little more slow moving in terms of the, that technology we see. Yeah, it's very, people talk about people and the importance of, of judgment and those things really haven't changed over time. The way money gets made in active management really hasn't got changed a great deal. Um, we can analyze and, and slice and dice to our heart's content, but it may not change what it is that makes a manager a good stock picker. So I'd say we're a little bit less bowled over by the new technology it is important, obviously, to aggregate it and to be able to make, say, generating a client presentation easier and em sure. to embrace AI, not to generate our client communications, but to maybe ensure that we've seen every angle when we make um, an argument to a client. So that's a little bit how we are um, using AI internally. And there's certainly a lot of a learning curve there. But and we're, we're not, I think, if we get to the point where we start to generate um, standard client communications using that, well, I think we're going to know ourselves that we're really just fooling ourselves in terms of our value added there. I'd love to move into culture and firm structure. So Moneta has this unique structure with 25 partner teams that have their own AUM and PL. What are the benefits and the drawbacks of having such a structure, do you think? Well, we actually have slightly more than those teams now that maybe it's somewhat um, that our, our website needs to be updated on a regular basis to reflect some of our um, our additions. But it, it's around about that number. Um, I'd say that the benefit of that is the autonomy that every, um, when we join with a new team, we know that they're, even though they're coming within the Mineta umbrella, they're still maintaining their their autonomy as a team and their ability to, to, to work within their own team and, and hire accordingly, even though we, we would assume at that point that they are meeting with the broader Mineta culture, it's still there's a, a there's a, a entrepreneurial side to having one's having one's own team that is um is key. They can do their own client events, generate clients in a certain way, develop a specialty maybe of working with clients, say either they say the professional sports area, um, and develop an expertise in that. Or maybe they'll have a particular edge when it comes to executives at a certain large um that large company that they will know everything about that company's stock plan their their bonuses and their and their benefits so every team has the ability then to tailor what they do that's beneficial but equally then they have the best of both worlds by being plugged into a large platform so i'll admit that i don't know that much about how other rias are working in terms of their interaction between centralized services and elsewhere but i do know that this structure enables us to cut out duplication really take advantage of comparative advantage and um, and free up our client teams to do what it is they love most, which is interacting with and generating new business. And as you're sitting on top of the organization as a CIO, how do you interact with those teams? What is what does that look like? 
one of my priorities when I became CIO over two years ago was to be visible to the teams. I'm based in Chicago. Most of the teams are in Missouri or elsewhere scattered. They're not all based in Chicago. Um, and therefore, by being here, I wanted to still ensure that I was visible to them. So I considered they are those are our clients, all of those teams. Um, they're our main clients and we make ourselves visible to them in many different ways. I mentioned earlier that I do a CIO tea every Friday at 11 o'clock is intended to be that kind of virtual water cooler moment where we sit down and discuss what we're seeing in markets, what's on our minds, what, ask them what's on their minds and try to be responsive as really a check-in. It's only half an hour. Sometimes we have external speakers, but that's turned out to be a, a very, very much a fixture in our weekly calendar. And uh, we get a very good attendance on that. We're very focused on thinking like owners and equally sharing the education um, with the ultimate advisors to the owners of capital. So we have frequent fireside chats. We bring in external speakers. We, we dig deeper into maybe certain areas of expertise and we share that um, maybe once a month, we'll have a fireside chat. Equally at the end of every quarter, we'll do a very, very real time quarterly update within a few days of the end of the quarter. We'll do a monthly update. We'll update them on our models. So we have this constant communication that you know, if, if it's excessive for certain client teams, they can always switch part of it off. But we would rather be very visible, too visible, in fact, um, uh, and and then have a client pick and choose what they would like than be never accessible and, and you know, hidden away. And that structure allows for, as you said, independence and then an entrepreneurialism. Some, a phrase that stood out to me on, on your website is the importance of entrepreneurial independence. And what... What do you think, what does that mean to you? And what do you think it means to your employees to be able to have that entrepreneurial independence? I think entrepreneurial independence uh, is usually what excites anyone who's at a firm that claims to have that as the, as the characteristic. So the entrepreneurial really gets down to autonomy, the ability to, to take initiative and have those initiatives realized uh, and given light and life. So I'd suggest that many of the clients that are part of the new generation of and wealth creation are, are actually entrepreneurs themselves. So they are, they maybe run their own businesses, or they've been driven career professionals that have moved through established businesses, and, and they have that hunger. So having that hunger be met in a financial advisor, I think is usually where you see that synergy and that that alignment. And that's why we are very successful at referring business and, and growing our businesses. So keeping that entrepreneurial alignment and that energy is, is key, we believe, to just keep making it seem less like a giant institution with cogs and wheels and more with that excitement and that energy of a small boutique. So I'm interest, always interested in the way people are viewing success and how they hoped what the, the, the goals they hope to achieve. So if we're having this conversation seven years from now with you in the CIOC, what would success look like to you? Definitely in order to have our team grow and um, flourish, we need to see assets grow accordingly because the more assets we have, the more allocations we can make the more credibility we have as an allocator. And uh, it's really a win-win-win as far as the investment team talent is concerned. So I have a very capable team that is um, is, is brilliant. and, and I, But I equally know that brilliant professionals need to be challenged and need to be grown and need to be stretched. So we want to be able to stretch those professionals by having more and more assets um, to advise upon. 
So I'd like to see our asset base continue to grow. As part of that, we will do increasingly sophisticated alternatives allocations with those investors that will allow our alternatives team to continue to grow. We will continue to do more of the bond trading and portfolio management in-house. We think that's that's really only just begun to grow. And we're going to see a huge growth in that because everyone will recognize the benefits of scale there. So we'll have a lot more, probably more, more personnel attached to that segment because we will um, we will be doing that again as table stakes. And we will be seen as thought leaders in the private wealth arena. So we won't just be seen to share our ideas internally, which we do today, but I'm hoping that Bloomberg columnists, when they're they're scrolling and scraping for views, are picking up Mineta views, Mineta strategists, and we're being highlighted across the industry, not only um, by our clients, but by the press at large. And do you have a stated goal of internalizing more investment decisions and research? Or is that not necessarily the path? Because I do know some of the big private wealth firms, wealth management firms here, multifamily uh, offices have big research teams. They're picking individual securities. Is that is that potentially on the menu or would you rather allocate time and resources in other directions? At this time, it's not a priority for us as we believe that there are countless numbers of experts in the space doing what we could do with a team that's already been built. So I think that the, the friction and the risk involved with building a team and the the, the time and management in, involved, many of our partner firms are doing that already and have done it for 20, 30 years. So why would we think that we have an edge particularly in that? So I'm never saying never, but I'd say that it's not a priority right now because we believe that on the side we can add value is um, again, diversifying into more of the higher value add investments. And um, we, you mentioned privates and alternatives a little bit, and I had a question about that. It feels like there's been, you know, kind of this mad rush to privates as, you know, for, especially for institutions that didn't traditionally have offer those solutions. So how do you, how do you get into whether it's private credit or, you know, anything else that's gener- garnering a lot of interest without just chasing what's hot and, worked well over the last decade. How do you do that thoughtfully? Well, I suppose we are using our institutional heritage um, to know asset classes that have been hot once and have stayed the course or others that have kind of fizzled out. And uh, I would think of, there are some areas such as that, and maybe some of the digital assets that were hot and now not so hot. And we are extremely wary of introducing any asset class into a portfolio mix without knowing how it's likely to behave within that portfolio. So we want to know a little bit about the characteristics of that asset class vis-a-vis other asset classes, vis-a-vis macro forces such as inflation and interest rates. And quite frankly, there was no information like that around digital assets. So we could provide education as to what they were and as to what they weren't, but we weren't recommending them because we, we didn't know where they would fit. So that's, um, and we still don't know really to, I think, to an extent where they would fit. So that is exactly how we approach hot asset classes. Everything will need full due diligence, full vetting, um, full kind of a sanity check in terms of um, our network and the the legacy uh, that, that that is, that has, and also the, um, the, the nature of the operators in the space. So it's actually kind of a slow moving beast, I think, to introduce new asset classes into portfolios. I think that's as it should be. Um, that's how it is for institutions and um, how it should be for private wealth clients as well. 
This season of Compounders is sponsored by Deluba. Deluba was founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity to the investment process. Deluba offers an AI-driven single source for all company reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. For more information, please visit delupa.com slash compounders. We couldn't end this podcast without discussing that you yourself are a podcast host. The podcast is called 50 Faces. I'm interested in why you decided to start the podcast and about what do you think it's done for the Moneta brand? So I started the podcast in 2020. I've been in the investment industry for two decades now and have always felt that there were so many compelling voices and stories in the industry whose stories should be told because they would be inspiring to others. Um, this is not the most diverse industry, as you know. Um, I think, mm -hmm. sadly, it's probably getting less diverse now in the post-COVID era. It has always had a hard time attracting a diverse blend of individuals that reflect our society. Um, and I was lucky enough to have seen many such individuals, and I wanted to amplify them and tell their stories so that others who look like them or maybe who would aspire to move into the industry would see them as role models. So it was a desire to create a, a library of role models and to tell their story of entering investing, primarily because I was so curious about it. How did you get here? You know, what was your story? What was your path? Um, I wanted to hear about people's failures, about their setbacks, because I think this is an industry that's a little bit too slow to discuss failures. I think we all know from every industry that failures is where the real learning happens. And um, usually it's the ability to embrace and learn from failure that is the sign of strength in an industry and, and gives rise to better innovation and, and better success ultimately. So I wanted to track all of that and to capture it and have it as a source of coaching or just insight for um, for many of us, not just the next generation, but the current generation in investing. Started that in 2020, called it 50 Faces as a commitment device to do 50 that year. And I've done 50 every year since. Um, now have over 200 podcasts on the investment channel alone. And I've also branched into other professions such as law, tech, medicine, because quite frankly, they have exactly the same um, amazing range of role models and a need for someone to tell that story. Just as far as the Moneta brand, anything that develops a network like a podcast um, is, is a good thing for the Moneta brand. I have had a tremendous, I say, boost to my network thanks to doing the podcast. I've made friends that I feel now intimately close to, and I've never even met in person because we entirely met over Zoom and through doing the podcast. And I have such massive respect for them. And I think we, we now have a relationship that is far more than one that's just transactional. So having that kind of network always benefits a firm like Moneta because it means we get better access, we're well known. And it, it's also made me a better presenter and a better communicator. Mm -hmm. So I suppose that has been more helpful internally um, to as well as also externally, just in terms of media work. Thanks for sharing that story. That's a very noble goal, but I think more more noble than 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 the start of compounders. Uh, I just would love to before we close. I'd love to ask a question about leadership and 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 your evolution. You talked about failures. I'd love to hear a little bit about you know ways that your mind has changed about your investing or failures that you have you know been through that have really uh, changed your approach. I suppose speaking initially about leadership and failures there, I think a lot comes from the phase of just maturing as a as a, as an individual. 
when one starts out, you know, you're, you don't know what you don't know. And that's probably a good thing in terms of your energy and willingness to get stuck in. I started my career as a, an attorney in New York firm. So the kind of the hundred hour weeks were the norm, but I felt like I was absolutely ready for that level of, ex of exposure, level of experience. And I didn't feel like I, just because I just graduated from law school that I, I had, my opinion was less worthy in any way. And I, I probably, um, the word, thinking of the words bull and China shop uh, may have been in the way I can approach professional settings initially um, without kind of a speaking as quickly as I do, you're throwing my ideas around, maybe not appreciating that people don't necessarily have the same appetite for change that I do. Um, I, I Now I suppose I'm a little bit more self-aware. I haven't changed my appetite for change, but what I have changed is my appreciation for others um, perhaps appreciation of that. So um, it's a little bit convoluted, but to say that I now try to calibrate um, my own style a little bit according to the audience I feel. I read the room a little bit more. And when it comes to leadership style, I do tend to assume that every member of a team has the same desire for reach and for stretch that I do. Um, mm. That's not the case with every individual. And I try again to modify my um, just the way I will I will challenge them, I suppose, um, according to what I think they're comfortable with. So it doesn't change my expectations for them, but it does maybe modify the pace at which I present challenge. And equally, my ability to, to present kind of at the drop of a hat, um, it, it stems from quite a lot of experience with presentation and with media. Um, I appreciate that not everybody has that same comfort level. So I've had to really, again, recalibrate um, my expectations when it comes to some people's desire to, to be a forward um, facing presenter and maybe to otherwise to, to stay behind the scenes and, and do the good work that must be done behind the scenes. So I say when it comes to leadership, those were lessons learned and they can only be learned through through failures, I suppose, um, in, in some ways. When it comes to investing, um, some of the mistakes I'd say might have been giving a manager too long um, to work through a difficult market environment. I think there is, again, a bit of a reading of the room required there, a bit of a, a temperature check to detect if a manager just is getting burned out with the strategy or is perhaps getting to a stage where they are, um, that their strategy is just no longer working. And we all know how long it takes to throw in the towel, um, that kind of sunk cost fallacy and, and just the general human nature against it. So I'd say I've probably um, stayed too long um, with certain managers, um, maybe long past the, the, the best buy date there. Um, and again, that again has just been, it's, it's a very typical problem with them, um, even with stock pickers, um, the ability to buy is quite well refined, but the ability to sell um, needs some work. So I'd say that probably is one of the, the lessons I've learned. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate those are, those are timeless lessons. Well, Ethan, this has been an incredible conversation. We've covered a lot. We'll close with the question we always asked our guests is, which is, what do you think is the most underappreciated aspect of Moneta? I think it's going to be the culture what you've spoken about. It is one of the best places to work as an employee. The number of employee engagement events, the um, the, the 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 golf tournaments, the um, the, the lunches in the park, the the, the pretzels in the lobby, um, the 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 work we do at some of our um, our volunteer sites. That is really what binds us together. And sometimes it seems like there's one every week. That's not necessarily something that the outside world sees but they really believe in treating their employees well and the benefits are generous. And I think that that time after time, that constant reminders, we know it's not just lip service to culture, it genuinely is a great place to work. And that's um, something that perhaps isn't appreciated, doesn't necessarily jump off our website, 
But I can tell you that it's why our turnover is low and uh, why people love working there. Well, um, I appreciate you being on. I think you were the first CIO of a, a wealth management firm, and we covered a lot of the topics that I'm very curious about because this has just been a space that's attracted a lot of attention, a lot of assets. So thank you for educating us about all of that and for being on Compounders. Thanks very much. I love it. Thanks.